So this episode of Get Lost You Can Find Your Way Home is going to be a little different. In light of a New Year's resolution I had this year, I made it a goal to read an average of five books a month since I had this really determined belief that just because I'm done with college doesn't mean I should stop reading and learning. In fact, I kind of feel like it's a skill that I want to keep sharp in a, in a weird way. That being said, there are some episodes I've got in production at this time that are going to be just a quick recap of the books I read that month, the big takeaways, whether or not they were worth it, and the knowledge I choose to share just in case you're in need of something new to dive into. If you are interested in any of the books mentioned in this episode and want to come up with an educated opinion on them for yourself, I'll leave some affiliate links in the show notes of this episode to give you a direct channel to the books. Plus... Should you choose to use the affiliate links, you'll be supporting the podcast where the money will go towards marketing and upgrading audio tech. Now, without further ado, let's take a look at the first month page by page. Kinda. Borealis Entertainment presents Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home, a podcast memoir by M.K. Lott. Chapter 9, January 2022 in Books. Book 1, Killing Sacred Cows by Garrett B. Gunderson. Biggest takeaway, it's not about making money, it's about providing value to others. I will easily say that one of my biggest vices is a lack of financial knowledge and discipline. Discipline especially more so, since something I've learned is no matter how many books you read, no matter how much advice you get, no matter how much money you continue to earn, None of that compensates for a lack of action, or poor action for that matter. Additionally, it doesn't compensate for a scarcity mindset, which is the belief that I want something, in this case money, because I don't have it. The danger with the scarcity mindset is subconsciously it assigns a very limiting identity to yourself, because when you say you want something because you don't have it, you recognize yourself as someone who is missing something. That being said, if you do receive that thing that you claim not to have, odds are you're not going to have it for very long, because having it consciously doesn't align with how you identify yourself subconsciously as someone who doesn't have that thing. Q, Killing Secret Cows. I got the book after meeting the author, and I felt compelled to read it despite having easy access to tons of copies of it in the library of where I worked in college. Who'd have thought that meeting the author makes you more excited to read their book? And for the most part, there were a lot of things he said that I constantly heard time and time again. Get insurance, make sure you have as much coverage as possible, and it's been a few months since that reading so I don't remember this exactly, all the more reason you should read it for yourself, but I think he was valiantly against 401k plans. But ultimately, the thing that really rang true for me, and again, my big takeaway was, at the end of the day, it's not about making money but providing value to others. I had heard this philosophy plenty of times before, but this time it hit very differently. Because from the perspective of a hypnotherapist, I understood what the act of giving value and giving in general does to your subconscious. By focusing on the thought of, okay, what can I provide and give to people that's of value, you're subconsciously identifying yourself as someone who is of value, who is capable, and maybe even abundant because you have enough to give without feeling lack when you give it. If you identify as someone who's lacking, your brain is going to look for and find lack and opportunities of lack because of the part of your brain that's known as the reticular activating system. But if you identify as someone who gives value, your brain is going to look for what it identifies as value. So in the case that you're starting a side hustle or a business or just trying to keep afloat, you gotta make sure that first and foremost, you are approaching this endeavor from the perspective of value and abundance. The money or whatever you wish to gain will manifest itself in its own way because that's what your brain is desiring on every level, not just the surface. 
Book 2. Will by Will Smith. Biggest takeaway, act upon the power of now. So yeah, this aged well. Keep in mind, I read this before the Oscar slap, so my opinions kind of took a pivot when that happened. I mean, that happened with everyone, but I'm going to explain my thoughts on the book pre-slap and post-slap, especially because of my biggest takeaway. So before the slap, I was really impressed with the stories he told that capitalized on a carpe diem approach to life and just jumping on whatever you were passionate about, especially because as a 20-something, like that's, that's my bread and butter right now. It's actually, I think, one of my biggest inspirations for Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home. But the story that most impressed me was his private conversation with Quincy Jones just before he auditioned for Will in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will remembers that when he asked him for more time in order to get proper acting lessons, Quincy Jones kept saying over and over all these things that pushed the audition further and further back. Like, well, we can't do Tuesday because the producer has to pick up his kids on Tuesday, and etc, etc, etc. And initially, Will was thrilled because his mind immediately went to, sweet, the more time to prep the merrier. But he slowly began to realize that Quincy countered him with more reasons to push it back to push the point that this moment will never come again. When an opportunity arises, it's tailored for you, but it's fleeting. So when things happen, don't ignore that. Then came that G.I. Jane joke, and it seems like I had to reassess that philosophy. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't watch the Oscars. I checked out years ago, but it was all over the place, so you couldn't avoid it. And I immediately found myself trying to think about it from Will's perspective, oddly enough. Like, maybe he had a really bad day and he just so happened to snap on live TV, and maybe there was some behind-the-scenes politics between the Smiths and Chris Rock. I don't know. But then I re-watched it, and he was laughing. He was having a fun time, and then a light switch seemed to go off. But the thing that really rubbed me the wrong way was how he started his acceptance speech. Because everyone who keeps tabs on Oscar nominees know that Will Smith's campaign to get this Oscar was one of the most aggressive in recent memory. In addition to King Richard, which he was nominated and ultimately won for his role as Richard Williams, he came out with a hefty autobiography, a documentary series on YouTube, a dramatic version of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with him as executive producer, which is not a title you just gloss over, and a National Geographic series on Disney Plus that he hosted, not to mention the insanely powerful social media presence he had. He brought a lot of eyes to him on this ceremony, which means there were a lot of eyes on that slap, and there were a lot of eyes on that speech, to which he started with, quote, this is as best of a transcript as I could get, Richard Williams was a fierce defender of his family. In this time in my life, in this moment, I am overwhelmed by what God is calling on me to do and be in this world. Making this film, I got to protect Angelou Ellis, who is one of the most strongest, most delicate people I ever met. I got to protect Sania and Demi, the two actresses that play Venus and Serena. I'm being called on my life to love people, and to protect people, and to be a river to my people." Close quote. And I couldn't help but think to myself, so assault is okay as long as it's out of love and protection? Because I don't think that holds up very well in a court of law if you threw the first punch as a response to a verbal joke. So I really had to rethink my big takeaway, because it seemed that the man who helped me realize this was also the man who debunked it. But then I think about where Will Smith was in his life when he had that moment with Quincy Jones, and where he was when he had that moment at the Oscars. With Quincy Jones, Will was 20, maybe 21. At the Oscars, Will was 53. And I think what I needed to realize was that big takeaway has an asterisk. 
When you act upon the power of now, you should do it out of experience and strategy, not emotion and impulse. It made sense for Will Smith in his early 20s because comparatively speaking, Will hadn't had that much life experience as an adult, so it made sense that he had yet to generate the strategy to make the best out of quote-unquote now. But at the Oscars, Will's age was more than double. He should have had plenty of life experience and opportunities to be a better strategist. Why choose a slap on live television when you could just go up to Chris Rock during a commercial break and say he needs to apologize to Jada? That may not be the most elegant way to do it, but at the very least, it's not a career killer. So act upon the power of now using all the previous nows you've collected in your lifetime. Book 3, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert T. Kiyosaki. Biggest takeaway, you are what you learn. This was a really interesting takeaway now that I look back at it because of Kiyosaki's perceptions of education. The most educated dad was the poor dad, while the wealthier dad was a dropout. I don't think he even finished grade school. I think he may have dropped out in eighth grade, I think is what the book said. But it got me excited because it opened up plenty of avenues for the path to wealth, and education ultimately means something different to everyone, though there is something that is very certain in education. You ultimately have the choice to expose yourself to various kinds of education, but the kind that you expose yourself to will change, not warp necessarily, but change your perceptions of the world around you, which is why financial intelligence became such a crucial aspect for me after college. By learning about financial intelligence, I can act upon financial intelligence. That's also why, oddly enough, I think the poor dad was also the educated dad. He learned, like a lot of us, that academic status is synonymous with economic status. And money won't be a problem because by the time I get a master's or a PhD, I'll have a job with a high enough status that I can pay off what I owe the university. What I would counter that with, and what I think a lot of people, including Kiyosaki, would counter with, is academic status encourages intellectual discipline, which is amazing to have and it can help narrow down your focus in other avenues of your life. The problem with that is a lot of people have such a narrow focus, especially if they continue into grad school, that they neglect the opportunities that come from learning other topics, such as business management and finance. That's what Robert Kiyosaki really tries to hone in with the idea of you are what you learn. If you go through specialized learning, you will become specialized. If your learning is diverse, you will be diverse. And I'm not going to argue that educational diversity is the way to go because a jack of all trades is a master of none. But if you're going to have a specialized education, make sure the imbalance with other topics is not as drastic as it can easily become. Book 4. Pitch Anything by Oram Claff. Biggest takeaway? Have fun! Because no one likes validation-seeking behavior. I read this book as a recommendation from my boss when I worked in sales, and at the time, I had never really read a book solely on sales. Marketing and sales funnel software, absolutely, but not the bootstrapping process of going up to people and pitching them something. Now, what Orem Clough introduces in this book is basically taking the bootstrap and polishing it so not only are you good, but you're having fun. My favorite example of this is when Claff was giving a pitch to a one percenter and the guy he was pitching to was doodling on the physical pitch paper he had with all the information given to him. When he saw this, Orem Claff snatched the paper out of the guy's hands, held it up, eyed it for a second and said, I'm impressed. I could see a print of this on a kitchen wall somewhere. He was obviously a lot more playful about it, but the point of that was to keep the attention on you but do it in a way that you're interacting with another human being and doing so in a playful manner. Because I know the biggest thing I took out of this book as a whole 
is if people you're pitching to don't like numbers and formulas, why should you treat them like a number and treat the pitch formulaically? Claff really brought home the idea of activating the lizard brain in order to emotionally resonate with a prospect on a primal level, which totally clicked with me as in hypnotherapy, he was explaining what's known as theory of mind, and using it with that approach is actually the foundation of every technique that is used in hypnosis. But when I mean people don't like validation-seeking behavior, I mean by going off of numbers and formulas, what you're essentially saying to the person in a pitch is, I did ABC, therefore I'm owed XYZ. I brought up the numbers and complimented your jacket, so now you need to buy my product. And this kind of logic does not translate well in most other fields. In the world of dating, this is called nice guy syndrome. In the world of leadership, this is collecting the specialists for the project but not building rapport as a team, or doing exercises to really hone in on the project. So the idea is, because you've already got the skills and the concepts locked and loaded, let go. If you rely on it too much, you start to act out of resistance, or to put it another way, you're relying too much on it because of something you don't have. See? And for a lot of people, letting go means having fun. It's why charisma is kind of a requirement in the world of sales. Everyone has more fun talking with a charismatic person. By having fun, you'll build your network and be more likely to get a sale rather than subconsciously saying to yourself, I gave you the pitch, therefore you owe me a transaction. And this works across every level. It doesn't work to say subconsciously to yourself, I've been really nice to you, therefore you owe me a date. Or say, I've brought you all together, Therefore, you owe me flawless cooperation, appreciation, and respect for one another. So, have fun. You'll build the trust that's needed to be more abundant in both your mindset and your actions. Book 5. Nice Racism by Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Biggest takeaway? Racism is not an easy conversation to be had, but it needs to be had. This is actually the only book on this list where I bought the physical copy and the audible copy, and there's a very important reason for that, which I'll get to. When I tried reading the physical copy, I put it down as soon as I read the title of chapter 2, which is, Why It's Okay to Generalize About White People. Call me ignorant, but if you're shitting on someone because they're white, you're criticizing them because of their race. And reverse racism is still racism. Sorry. So, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that she would devote an entire chapter to this, and maybe that's because I bought it with a specific idea of what the book would be like in my head. When it comes to the subject of race, most of my education comes from the books I read in school and statistical psychology texts. So, maybe I was just new to the world of sociology, which I didn't consider until later in the book when she brought up that she's not approaching this argument from the mind of a psychologist, because it's unfamiliar to her. That's not what she specialized in. So when I heard that, I thought, oh, maybe I'm confused as I read this because I'm not understanding this from the lens of a sociologist. I also decided to try again, but in audio form, because for those unfamiliar with NLP and other forms of psychology and therapy, the written word only accounts for 7% of communication. I would take an educated guess that that's why a lot of breakups happen over text. But tonality, or the way those words are communicated, account for 38%. And if there was a medium that increased the author's ability to explain a concept almost sixfold, I was more than happy to give Dr. D'Angelo's book another shot. And ultimately, since I wound up finishing the book, there was a lot that I agreed with and a lot that I disagreed with. I completely agreed 
and still agree with the fact that every race has their own healing path. Because even though a lot of shit has been done, it's been done in different ways and on different levels. So it only makes sense that there's no easy clean-cut answer on how to end racism, because it's a highly complex subject with a very messy history. So to believe that one size fits all, I think, is completely incorrect. Secondly, I also believe that racism will take way more time than we would like to admit to heal and fix. Like, generations worth of time. You gotta remember too, even though no one was around when it happened, as of this episode, or should I say as of the year of this episode, America is 246 years old. Compared to a nation like China or Greece, we are very, very young. And only a small fraction of our lifespan as a country has really tackled the concept of racial equality the way it's being handled now, which is pro-equality and anti-racism. Centuries at this point of cultural programming is not going to change overnight, but by planting and nurturing the seeds now, we can fix that in the long run. And I really respect Dr. D'Angelo's decision to introduce that in her text. Now, before I go into my disagreements, I just want to say, your right to disagree with me and my view is just as valid as my right to express it. Even though I feel like odds are that those I would need to say that to have already checked out by this point. <laughs> now, a lot of my disagreements don't come from my views as a therapist, oddly enough. Instead, they come from my views as a logician or someone with a background, an academic background in logic. One of the skills you get from a philosophy degree is you're able to dissect and construct arguments and debates very meticulously, which is why a lot of philosophy students typically go into either law or politics, or both. So as soon as I read the title of chapter two, I immediately put the book down because my mind went to, okay, she just openly admitted to a hasty generalization. Why would I continue to hear her out when she admits the flaws of her own argument? But then I thought about the idea of tonality, and I was willing to give it another shot. The hasty generalization continued throughout her book, though, especially in chapter 6, when she applies this to the idea that white people will take the religion and faiths of other cultures and claim that because we're all divine beings, race is pointless, or they try not to look racist because they're embracing a faith that was not originated by their own race. So, for those who don't know, hasty generalization is when you apply a trait that some members of a group have to the entire group. Uh, for example, Stacy has hair and is white, therefore everyone who is white has hair, or therefore everyone who has hair is white. So in the context of chapter 6, it seems like she makes the claim if a white person subscribes to a faith that does not have a white origin, they're playing off the idea that if I believe this then I'm clearly not racist. And in my mind I thought, what about all the white people who have those faiths because they actually believe them and respect the cultures that come with them? It was very difficult to see her argument with claims like that, and especially since one of the first things that actually encouraged me to put the book down the first time was the way she chose to handle and identify a critic. Instead of just saying, a critic, she chose to identify them as racist asshole at gofuckyourself.com. Logically, that's an ad hominem when you go after the person's character rather than their argument. Calling someone a racist asshole and telling them to go fuck themselves is not going to change the argument they brought to the table. If anything, it shows you're emotionally compromised and you've ran out of plans. And when I read it, I thought, you have a PhD, 
And that's what you choose to include and portray this anonymous critic as? About two chapters in, her credentials were put into question, which for me is not what you want, especially if you're talking about something as sensitive as racism and when you have a doctorate degree. But if anything, the book has helped me realize that racism is very complex, which means because of that, it's harder to filter out the actually solid arguments from just straight up rage. But it's important and more so for that matter that we go through and find those solid arguments so as we heal and plant those seeds of healing, we can plant the right seeds and heal as a society and a culture properly. Book 6, The Money Guide to NFT Investing by Liam Morris. Biggest takeaway, there's always unexpected ways of making money and there's always new ways of creating value. Not gonna lie, I was kind of on an NFT kick for a few months, so I figured it only made sense that if I tried my hand at it, I'd try to get as education on the subject as I possibly could. Now to say that NFTs or non-fungible tokens are controversial is an understatement. I genuinely believe that there are genuine opportunities for new mediums of art. Case in point, the well-known Beeple, who really jump-started the NFT trend once he sold his collection for $69 million. But NFTs are so tainted by people who are only capitalizing on the opportunity to make money fast rather than actually make true art that from a marketing perspective, it feels like a bad move for your brand and on NFTs as a whole. For example, when the movie Dune came out, Warner Brothers created these gorgeous NFTs of the cast being made out of the sands of Arrakis, which is a really intriguing concept, and then you look at the feedback. Another controversy about NFTs is they supposedly leave a really nasty footprint on the environment, and because Dune is seen as a book for environmentalism, the studio got a lot of flack for missing the point. Not that this would be the first time a major corporation missed the point. But the more I learned about this topic after reading the book, the more I ultimately decided to discontinue and never publish my own NFT, because there are plenty of other ways to make art. Plus, it helped me realize the double standard I was living of owning virtual art? Hell yeah! Owning virtual things like real estate? That's just stupid. But if I had to take a positive thing out of this book, it's that value is in the eyes of the beholder, and we are extremely adaptable. There's always opportunities to generate income, no matter how passive, and value is so subjective that the possibilities are endless. Book 7, The Maladaptive Daydreaming Guide by Alex Benoit. Biggest takeaway, monsters under the bed are actually opportunities for solutions. So I had originally thought that I had maladaptive daydreaming, and a part of me still does, but not as much as before since it seems like maladaptive daydreaming almost always comes from trauma of some kind, which I can't think of for myself. But once I discovered maladaptive daydreaming through The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, I immediately began to pursue as much literature on it as I could, which is easier said than done for that, because MD was first coined in 2002. But as informal as it is compared to academic studies, this guide is the most sympathetic work on it that I've found, mainly because it's written by someone who has maladaptive daydreaming, who strives to help others with their maladaptive daydreaming. And the biggest takeaway isn't something written in the book, it's actually a quote from one of my hypnotherapy professors, Elaine Perlis, who said, just to paraphrase her, monsters under the bed are actually opportunities for solutions. When you have a condition like maladaptive daydreaming, or when you read something that you strongly disagree with, or makes you feel attacked, you can either let it negatively impact you and resist it, or perceive it as potential for growth and accepting the growing pain that comes with it. 
Once that happens, you allow yourself to be open to other opportunities to expand and capitalize on that. While there were some things I implemented from the book, and I'll talk about that in a later chapter of my experiences, just knowing that book existed and the fact that one of the first things Alex Benoit confronts is that you are not alone on this made the book memorable for me. It's not going to be memorable for everyone who reads it, because not everyone who reads it will have maladaptive daydreaming, but at the very least, this book taught me that it's only a monster under the bed if you see it as that. Just like how it can be an opportunity for a solution if you choose to see it as that. Book 8, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Biggest takeaway, knowledge is the incentive for wisdom. As much as I think a lot of us would love to say otherwise, you can only go so far in reading about experiences before you need to have them for yourself. But there's something to be said about obtaining that knowledge first, as I believe that by exposing yourself to different kinds of knowledge, because you are what you learn, you get the inspiration to try it for yourself and translate it into wisdom which you can share with others what that's like before becoming knowledge for someone else and restarting the cycle. It took me in the entire book to really understand that since I was lost in the dark for the majority of this because it's an English translation of a long-form poem turned novel originally written in German. So there were a lot of parts where the musicality was off and it was really clear that an idea in one language doesn't make sense in another. But at the end of the book, the main character, Siddhartha, has what I think is his last moments with his childhood best friend, Govinda, who spent the majority, if not entirety, of his adult life as a disciple of the Buddha. Siddhartha had all these life experiences in order to figure out what life was all about, and even though he went in an almost opposite direction than his friend, for example, he got wealthy as a gambler, he had a son with a prostitute, he lived a quiet life with a ferryman, he still received enlightenment at the end of the book. But it was his own form of enlightenment. Two lines from the book that really stood out to me are, wisdom cannot be passed on, it always sounds like foolishness, and knowledge can be conveyed, but not wisdom. There's some of the last lines in the book, but they bring everything into perspective because stories can be told and events can be described and those can be passed on. I can tell you what it's like to make a podcast week after week and the hard work and satisfaction that goes into it, but I can't share with you the wisdom that comes with making a podcast. All I can do is share with you what I can and leave it up to you to decide whether you wish to archive the knowledge or use it as a foundation to your own path to that kind of wisdom. But I think that's also because wisdom can't be shared, and if that was possible, it shouldn't be shared. Wisdom would depreciate in value if it was no longer unique on a subjective and individual level. That's what made Siddhartha's enlightenment so powerful at the end of the story, and it's why Govinda respected his path to enlightenment, even though he compared it to the ramblings of a madman. He couldn't understand what Siddhartha went through because they weren't his experiences to have. But Govinda understood that Siddhartha discovered the value of life and the world around him because he couldn't have experienced life and obtained that knowledge in any other way. In the words of the life coach Peter Crone, it couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost so you can find your way home. I hope this episode leaves you better than it found you. And if you're curious at all about the books I mentioned in this episode, feel free to check out the show notes where I'll leave affiliate links to them where you can formulate your own views on them. I'd also love to hear your thoughts on them. If you'd like to have a conversation about them, feel free to reach out on Instagram at mklotprohobbyist. Thank you so much as always for listening, and until next time, here's to finding your way.